Christ is risen. It's good to be back. I hated missing in December, but as Blaine was so kind to tell you, I lacked the faith in my sickness to get on the plane and come, so he had to step in for me. But I am feeling much better. Thanks for your prayers. Happy birthday, Ed. I was going to tell you in front of all these people that I appreciate the ways that you've been like a father to me, but now I think I maybe should say, thanks for the ways you've been a grandfather to me. (laughs) So deeply in your debt. And Pastor Janice and Pastor Brand and Pastor Blaine, they they wanted me to do my Marilyn Monroe happy birthday song to you. So (laughs) this is that moment. (laughs) There was the line and I, yeah. I totally crossed it. It is good to be here, right? I just want to stop right now, right? This is the best it's going to get today right here. No, man, it is really good to be back. Before we get to the sermon, I want to take a moment to celebrate some good news. Those of you who know, we are supporting here at Sanctuary. We're supporting the church plant, Pastor Janice and Pastor Brent's son. Brent is leading in Nashville, Sacrament Church. What did I say? Brent, yes. Preston is so like his son. Brent is so like his son. Yeah, forget it. The sharp boy. I'm not sharp, clearly. Preston's plant in Nashville is, I, I was, let me say this. I was a church planter once in, in another life. And, you know, not every church plant needs to be supported, right? But Preston really is someone I think we know here at this community. And we know the way that he is going to work. So this is a, a, a church plan we can support and should support. And I'm so glad that we are. We raised $6,000 to support them for their launch. And their church planning organization matched our gift. So now they have $12,000 to start their launch. That is going to be such an enormous help for them. So give yourselves a hand. And now if I can just get his name right, right, we'll, we'll go from there. No, actually, uh, Preston and I actually live fairly close to one another now. I live in Tennessee, and we've able, been able to get together, and I've been able to tell him, listen, I've tried this. Avoid everything that I did. Success is guaranteed, right? That's, that's the way that it works. We're in the season of Epiphany, and the season in which we celebrate Christ's revelation to the world, his revelation in his nativity, his revelation at his baptism, his revelation at his first miracle. This morning, I want us to think about another kind of revelation, and one that I think we desperately need And that is a revelation of Christ in his church. We need an epiphany. We need a flood of revelation about what it means for Christ to be present in his church. In in, in two ways we need the revelation. We need the revelation in the sense that we need to understand it. We need to have our imagination stamped with a new awareness of what it means to talk about the church. I mean, we say every week, we believe in the church. What are we saying when we say we believe in the church? So we need a revelation that opens our eyes. But we also need to become the revelation. Tulsa needs to see sanctuary become an epiphany of the church. Epiphany of Christ as the church. So that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. How many of you have read or heard Oliver Sacks' story, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat? Any of you ever heard this? Some of you are going to Google it right now. Oliver Sacks is a neurologist. And... He gets a visit one day from a man, a man he calls in the story, not his real name, Dr. P, who, Dr. P was a lifelong classical musician and later in life had taken a post teaching at a university 
teaching music at a university. Highly, highly skilled, excellent teacher. But there were just a, a few things in his life that weren't quite right. And his family found themselves troubled by it. For instance, occasionally Dr. P would walk along the street, see a fire hydrant, pat it on the head, and talk to it like it was a little child. And this just seemed out of kilter with who he was normally. He seemed rather sane to everyone, except in these moments, these flashes of something, something disordered. So they, he comes eventually to see Oliver Sacks, Dr. Sacks. And so they have their, their first meeting. And Sacks says, when I met him first, he seemed incredibly sane, so much, so orderly. That I didn't think there could really be anything wrong with him. He said, but then after talking with him for a few minutes, I realized the way he was looking at me was teasingly strange. He said, it was as if he wasn't looking at my face. He was looking at parts of my face. He was focused on my nose and then my chin and then my ear, but he was never looking at my face. He said, so we started to do some tests, and he said, I didn't realize how severe the problem was until I did a test of reflexes on the bottom of his feet. Had him take off his shoe and sit on the, in the chair, and I took a key and ran it along the bottom of his foot to test his reflexes. All of his reflexes worked just fine, so I told him, Dr. P, put your shoe back on, and I turned to make some notes in, in my journal. I turned back around, and he was still sitting there barefooted with this, this happy smile on his face. And I said to him again, thinking he hadn't heard me, put your shoe on. We're done. We're, we're through. And he just looked at me with a kind of puzzled look and sat there, unmoving. So Dr. Sachs says, I said to him a third time, put your shoe on. At which point, Dr. P very politely says, do you mean I have my shoe? Points at his bare foot. And Oliver Sachs says to him, no, 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 that's your foot. Your shoe is over there. And Dr. P says, oh, I thought this was my shoe and that was my foot. You can laugh. You can laugh. And Dr. Sachs says, I realize something is, in fact, wrong here. He says, so I showed him a rose. And he takes the rose in his hands and feels it and says, hmm, it's a convoluted form, red form with a green line coming out of it. Well, yes, but what is it? And so he tries to guess and can't guess, and finally he says, smell it. He smells it. Oh, it's a rose. Yes. Shows him a glove. He says, well, I need to feel it. Takes it into his hands, and he feels it. And he says, well, it's one continuous surface folded in on itself with five outpouchings. Isn't that a great word? <laughs> outpouchings. <laughs> what could it be? So they guess, and this is Dr. B. Ah, oh, it's a container for five different kinds of coins. <laughs> then he slips the glove on his hand. Oh, it's a glove. And then finally, after one of the sessions, Dr. Sachs says to Dr. P, we're done for the day. You, you may go, and I'll see you next week. At which point, Dr. P turns, grabs his wife by the top of the head, and lifts. And then says to her apologetically, I'm sorry, I thought you were my hat. I thought that was my hat. That's the story title, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, right? He never discovered what was wrong. He never dis discerned exactly what it was, except to say it was a failure of judgment. He couldn't decide if it was biochemical, neurological, or psychological, but somehow Dr. P was failing in his judgment. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that I suspect we have a similar disorder when it comes to the church. 
We're mistaking fire hydrants for kids and feet for shoes and roses for convoluted forms with green lines coming out of them when we talk about the church. And it's, it's, we're so right in so much of our life, we, we can't imagine that this could be this wrong. But what if we are that disordered when it comes to what it means to be the church? That's what I want to explore with you this morning. And I, w- I want to start by just reading a bit of Dr. Sachs' official statement in his notes about Dr. P. I'm just going to read a bit of it to you. His responses were very curious. His eyes would dart from one thing to another, picking up tiny features, individual features, just as he had once done with my face in their first meeting. A striking brightness, a color, a shape would arrest his attention and elicit comment. But in no case did he get the scene as a whole. He failed to see the whole. He saw only details like blips on a radar screen. He never entered into relation with the whole picture. What if the way we live our Christian life is we only see blips? We see God's work so individualistically and so atomistically, we never get the big picture. Not just of what God is doing in the world, but what God wants to do in this community. And we never see that his work is about the community as well as about us. You remember the story Peter and The other disciples, Jesus asked them, who am I? Who am I being said to be? Saying you're one of the prophets resurrected. Yeah, but who do you think I am? And Peter leaps up, speaks before any of the others can speak and says, you're Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the living son of God. You're God's son. And what does Jesus say in response to him? That's revelation. This didn't arise from you. This came from my father. This is true. And then Jesus immediately launches into a story about what is going to happen to him. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten and crucified. I'm going to be dead and buried. I'm going to be raised on the third day. And Peter takes him aside and says, oh, no. No, you're not. That's not what happens to Messiah. I want you to notice what's happened. He received genuine revelation. But as soon as God speaks to us, we interpret it. And if our minds are not renewed, we pervert the genuine revelation. No matter how authentic the word is from God, I have to interpret it. And if my life is not renewed in his image, then I will pervert what he speaks into my own image. If I'm not made like him, then I will take his word and make it like I expect it to be. And so Peter takes the revelation you're the Messiah, and makes it to mean you're the Messiah I expect you to be. Jesus said in the first case, once he received the revelation, I'll build my church on you. But once Peter takes him aside and says, you cannot go to Jerusalem, you cannot be betrayed, you cannot be killed, what does he say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the the things of the world, the things of men, and not the things of God. You are a stumbling block to me. So Peter went from being affirmed as the the foundation stone of the church to the stumbling block who was inhibiting what Jesus wanted to do in building his church. Now what I I suspect is that we think we understand better than Peter did. We know what we mean when we say, you are the Christ. But if we don't understand what Jesus meant when he said, I will build my church, we still don't understand what he means when he says he's the Christ. He's the Christ. 
I think most of us read Jesus' word and we hear, I will make a lot of individual Christians. Or I will build ministries. But Jesus didn't say, I will convert a lot of individuals to follow my father. Or follow me to my father. He didn't say, I will build powerful ministries. He said, I will build my church. And until we understand what we mean and what he means when he says he will build his church, then like Peter, we will have a genuine revelation that we've distorted with our own unsanctified imagination and we will become stumbling blocks to the very work we think we're cooperating with. And what God is wanting to do, in all of our energy, we will be inhibiting it. That's what I think is at stake here. Because if we don't understand what is meant by church, then we can't be the church. We can't lean into it properly. And, and, and if I'm right, if, if there is something wrong, something just disordered about how we think about the church, then that means we're going to misread Scripture. Let me give you a few examples of how I think that works out. Do you realize that all of Scripture was written to communities? Every text that we call Scripture was a, was a, a text writ, written for communities. Even those letters that are two individuals, Timothy and Titus and Philemon, were meant to be read publicly. They were written, crafted to be heard by the public. And yet most of us have been trained to think of reading the Bible as a private practice, as something we do on our own. The, the inspiration of Scripture happened for communities, and yet now we've somehow made it about the individual believer. Now don't hear me saying we shouldn't read the Bible on our own, but I find it odd that the Bible was written for communities and somehow we've restricted the use, at least making it primarily about individual use. And then there are all kinds of texts in Scripture that speak to us corporately, but we hear them individually. Classic example is Romans 12. I plead with you, Paul says, that you present your, our texts say, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But actually, the text says, I plead with you, I implore you, plural, to present your body, singular, a living sacrifice, singular. What Paul is saying to the Romans is not, I want each one of you to offer your individual life as a sacrifice to the Lord. He's saying, I want all of you together as one to offer your life together as a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 6. Now listen, in Tulsa, you, you can't have been here long without hearing a sermon about the armor of the Lord, putting on the whole armor of Christ, right? But do you know that that's not addressed to individual believers? Paul is not saying each one of you needs to wake up in the morning, rub the sleep out of your eye and get a helmet of salvation and put it on, put on the breastplate of righteousness, take up the sword of the spirit and pick up your shield of faith and go out to face the devil. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is there is one warrior and that is Jesus. It's the armor of Christ. But he puts that armor on his body, and we are that body. There aren't many helmets of salvation. There's one helmet of salvation. And all of us, together as one body, corporately, we wear the armor. But we can't read it that way because we've been trained to see it as applying individualistically. What about the text in Philippians when Paul tells them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling? Again, we hear that as applying to each one of us. I need to work out my salvation. Blaine needs to work out his salvation. But Paul is not saying each one of you get to the work of working out your individual salvation. He's saying all of y'all need to work together to work out your shared salvation. 
And on and on and on the examples go. These texts are addressed to bodies of people, to communities, and we hear them individually. And like Dr. P, we're looking at our bare foot and calling it a shoe, and looking at our shoe and calling it our foot. But more tragically than misreading scripture, we misread our lives and our experiences. We misunderstand God's will because we read our lives and we think the whole goal of my life is to get closer to the Lord personally. So if this community isn't helping me do that, I've got to find a community that feeds me. I've got to find a community that cares for me because underneath all of this is the assumption that the church exists to serve each of us. We think, whether we put it in these terms or not, we've been trained to think that the church is a support group for our individual relationship with God. That it is a voluntary association that I can depend upon if I need it. I was on Facebook several years ago. I wish that was the last time I'd been on Facebook. (laughs) And I saw a, a status with 172 comments. And I should have known, don't click on the status with 172 comments. Because if it's not a picture of a newborn, 172 comments means somebody's threatening to kill somebody else. Like there, there's no way this is, a good, this is a good conversation. The original status was from a pastor talking about what it means to be the church. One of the first comments was from a woman who had been hurt in a church and she was resisting what he had said about the church. At which point, a third party, another pastor, rushed in to inform her that she was wrong about the nature of the church. And then about 116 comments later, the two of them having eviscerated one another in every way imaginable, she says this. And she said, I'm done. This is my last comment. You know, followed by 27 more comments from her. But she said, I'm done. This is my last comment. All I know to say is this. I get closer to Jesus and further from the church every day. And as soon as I read that line, I realized we all think that's possible. We may not think it's the best idea. We may not think it's advisable, but we think it's possible. And what I wanna say to you is it's not possible. There is no getting closer to Jesus while getting further away from his body. Can you imagine if I called my wife today and said, honey, I just want you to know I adore you. I want to be with you, not only in this life, but in the life to come. I I love you forever, eternally, infinitely, but I'd rather us not see one another. I don't really want to see you. I I don't want to talk to you. There cannot be any kind of touch. Let's not be in the same room at the same time, but I love you. That's how absurd it is to say, I get closer to Jesus and further from his body every day. Why do we not realize the absurdity of that? Because like Dr. P, we're disordered. Like Peter, we're disordered and we're taking Jesus aside and instructing him about what's possible. But there is no relationship with Jesus that's not a relationship with this church. You know, the early church fathers had a saying, there is no salvation apart from the church. And they had another saying, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. That's so foreign to us. Because the disease that we have has made it so that we see the church as existing as scaffolding for the real work of God. The church is just scaffolding that can be done away with as soon as God has done his work in me. If you doubt me, I want want to give you another example that I think will make just that point. It was a huge church, mega church. All of you would know it if I named it. Several years ago, they did a self-study. And they didn't like the results of the study. And they said, to their credit, they owned 
we're not discipling our people. We have lots of people who come to our services. We have lots of people who benefit from our ministries, but they're not maturing in the faith. And so they called for and began to initiate a radical change in the way they did ministry. But the model of discipleship that they adopted was, in my opinion, worse than the problem they were trying to fix. Because the model of discipleship they adopted had as its goal to make every member a self-feeder. Do you realize what's being said? That the work of the church is to make you independent of it. We're trying to make it so you don't need us. You can do this for yourself. But that is not the way the work of God actually plays out in our lives. He doesn't want me to become less and less dependent on you. He wants me to become more and more dependent upon you. The more mature I become, the more like Christ I become, the more holiness has worked into my life. I don't move further and further from community. I move deeper into the heart of community. So how could we get, it, get something that wrong? Because we are that diseased when it comes to thinking about what it means to be the church. So how do we, how do we shift this? Let me be really careful here. I'm going to say a couple things just to clarify. When I talk about the church, I'm not talking about a staging ground for ministries. Right? There, are, there are many, many churches, really what they are, they're staging grounds for ministries to go on. And people come and benefit from those ministries and then go away back to their lives. But church is more than that. We do have ministries, but we're more than a collection of ministries. And then there are other churches that are networks of, they're attempting to be at least, networks of fulfilling relationships. Now this really afflicts, I think, really afflicts my generation. I, I, the church plan I was a part of, many of my friends, we talk about the church like that's the place where you go to have real intimacy. But what, what I want to suggest is that those are friendships. And they're incredibly important. But the church is something else. That what God is trying to build is not a place where I have a fulfilling, a fulfilling relationship with all of you. Although I hope there are some fulfilling relationships within this community. What God wants is a community where we can be shaped in his image and can reflect his image to the world. And that means I need people in this community who are not like me. Who do not experience the world the way I experience the world. That's why in a community we need strong and weak and rich and poor. We need people with all kinds of backgrounds, whether in church or out of church. We need young believers and mature believers. We need people from all possible experiences, all possible backgrounds, all possible social classes, all possible economic standings, so we can learn together what it means to follow Jesus. Because if we're all alike, we're going to misunderstand our reading of the gospel for the gospel itself. This is the problem with three or four or five of us who are all the same age, who went to the same Bible college, read the same books, going to a coffee shop and calling that church. That's not church. That's friendship. It's hugely important. But you will be the same person when you leave that conversation as you were when you came to it. But when you encounter somebody who looks at you and says, I don't understand what you're talking about. That doesn't make any sense to me. There is an opportunity for real transformation to take place. In that moment, God has made space for you to be saved from the way you imagine the world. And every time we encounter difference in one another, this, this, this is what I've come to believe, the greater the difference, the more room there is for God to work. The more we can, we can tolerate the difference, the more room we give God to make us new. This is why when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't call all tax collectors, he didn't call all fishermen, he didn't call all rebels, he called some from each group, 
and called them to follow him. Can you imagine what it was like to be a disciple of Jesus? Just think about that inner group of the 12. You've got Matthew, the tax collector, who is working for the Roman government, and you have Judas Iscariot, who is an assassin who kills Jews who work for the Roman government. Think about what that would mean. Think about what that would mean. That you are following Jesus, but you're constantly looking over your shoulder. (laughs) Judas, no, you can't stand behind me. And if you come to church and you're not doing this, you're not at church. You're not at church. I mean, if there's not a Judas around you, it's not a church. It looks too much like you. It doesn't look like him. It looks like you. I mean, I grew up in a church. The church I grew up in, everybody was white, middle class, voted Republican, and drove a Chevy or Ford. Right? Everybody. Everybody. And is it any wonder that we had no imagination, that we had no compassion? Because we, we were shaped in our own image. That's not what God wants for us. He wants to build his church of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, there's neither strong or weak, that all are being made one. You should be more excited about this. That, that's what God wants for us. How about some Bible? Let's look in scripture. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look quickly at three passages just in the book of Ephesians that I think show us a glimpse of what we're called to be as the church. Ephesians 1 is is one continuous sentence. We're just going to jump mid-thought. Verse 20. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he has put all things under Jesus' feet and has made Jesus the head over all things for the church. One way of reading the gospel story is that everything God did in Jesus, he did for the church. He did it all for these people we call the church. Notice how Paul describes it. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him. Now, we're all comfortable talking about Jesus as the fullness of God. We're all comfortable saying there's no way to come to the Father except through Christ. There's no way to know the Father and to receive salvation except through Jesus. He is the fullness of God. He's not only with God in the beginning, he is God in the beginning. And in this last day, Hebrews 1, God has spoken this final word in Jesus, who is the full expression of his person. But did you know that what scripture teaches is, just as there's no way to get to God without coming through the fullness of Christ, there's no way to get to Christ without coming through the fullness of his body. And that is not second nature to us. We know how to affirm the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Christ we do not know how to affirm the uniqueness and sufficiency of the church. We know how to say in the second stanza of that creed, I believe in Jesus. But when we come to the third stanza and we say, and I believe in the church, we don't know what we mean because we've separated what God did for us in Jesus from what God wants to do in us through the power of the Spirit. We want to talk and celebrate about everything God did for us in Jesus because that's already done. You remember Jesus on the cross says, it 
is finished. Hebrews says, once he had done this work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father once for all. And we know how to talk that talk. We know how to sing that song. But Colossians 1, Paul says to the church, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake because I am making up in my body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church, his body. And our brains snap. Because we don't know how to think about what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Because all we know how to, the only song we know how to sing is, there's nothing lacking in Christ. And in the sense of what God did for us, that's true. But God doesn't just do that for us. Now he wants to work it in us and through us to the world. And that work is not done. That work is still, it's actually just beginning. We've just begun to be shaped in his image. And that's why Paul says, I rejoice because my sufferings are making the church more like his body. And what God wants for sanctuary and for every local church is for that church to become the fullness of Christ. And that work is not done. Ephesians 4. Paul is talking about Christ's dissension and death and ascension. And then at Pentecost, the pouring out of all of these gifts of apostle and prophet and pastor and teacher. Notice what all of those gifts from the resurrected, ascended Christ are meant to do. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. For building up the body of Christ. Because it's in the body that God comes available for us. It's the body of Jesus that brings healing. You remember all those stories in the gospel about how he walks by and people touch his body and they're healed? Right? Because it's the body of Jesus that is the location of God's saving work in the world. That's why we come every week to this table and pray, Spirit, make this bread the body of Christ and make this cup his blood. Because it's the body of Christ that is God's availability to us of that salvation he promises. We're meant to be that body. We're meant to be the body that becomes God's availability for the people who don't yet know him, who don't yet, haven't yet experienced his salvation. So Paul says, we're here doing the work of ministry to build up the body until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. Notice Paul's vision of maturity. is not each of us come to maturity. All of us come to maturity. No longer tossed about by every wind of doctrine, verse 14. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, again, notice Paul's emphasis over and over and over again is on the whole body. The whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Now, now don't misunderstand me. We do have a personal relationship with God. We do have personal intimacy with him. But in our, in our experience, that's almost always what we see as the end. That the goal is to have this personal relationship with God. But notice how Ephesians describes it. As each part is working properly, the body is built up. Not as the body is working properly, each part is built up. And we need to reimagine the way the grace of God flows. It flows into my life for the sake of the body. His gift to me, his calling on me is for the sake of the body. I am in the place of serving the community. 
not the community existing to serve me. Now, of course, I draw life from the community. I draw strength from the community. There is a kind of reciprocity between the community and the individual members. But we must never forget we are meant to serve the body's growth. And anything I do and everything I do has to be for the sake of the body. I may have told you this story before, but there was a man, John Winthrop, who came from England. He was a Puritan who had once been an Anglican, but he had to break with the Anglicans because they were impure, and he became a Puritan. Before long, he broke with the Puritans because they were kind of, you know, not pure anymore. So he comes to the States, and he founds a kind of pure Puritanism. And before long, that pure Puritanism is a little bit impure, and so he founds a pure, pure Puritanism. And when he dies, this is the true, true story, when he dies, he is pastoring another church that has three members, himself included, his wife and one other man. And if he had lived two more days, right, one of those two would have left, right? He was, you, you see what's happening? He saw the church as existing for his own purity. So every time there was conflict, every time there was disagreement about vision, well, I'll start a new church, a true church, a pure church. But that logic leads to the individual member being cut off from the body. You know that image in Ezekiel of the valley of dry bones and God is trying to gather everything into one? There are other ways in which there's a living body and we're pulling it apart in the name of our individual maturity. The body is supposed to be built up from the members. My relationship with God is not just for me alone. It's not just for my wife and my children. It's for the community. One more text, Ephesians 2. Paul has talked about Christ as peace. He's drawn on body imagery, how we're the new humanity. We're neither Jew nor Greek. We are new creatures in Christ. And then verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole temple grows. In him you also are built together in the spirit into a dwelling place for God. If we don't let the spirit make us into a temple, what we will have at most is visitation. God will visit, but he can't inhabit. We can only expect God to dwell when we let the spirit make us into a temple. And the temple has to be built wide enough to make room for all that God wants to do. And that wideness is dependent upon how are we willing to let, how different are we willing to let God make this body? How many different people, different perspectives, different backgrounds, different experiences are we willing to let God bring to bear in this community so that there's room for him to dwell? Because if we don't let it grow, he'll visit because he loves us and he's relentless. But unless we yield to what he wants to do in us, there can't be habitation. And I want to say, one of the things we learn about Advent and Epiphany is that God's work among us is vulnerable. Now, God is invulnerable. There's nothing we can do to God to unmake him. There's nothing we can do to God that threatens him. He's unassailable. But his work is fragile. And we can abort his work. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, you are the temple of the Lord, and woe to the one who destroys the temple. Because God's work can be undone. Now, he immediately starts in the rubble to rebuild again. 
You bring death and God immediately brings resurrection life. He's not going to be stopped in showing mercy, but his work is fragile. And so the question for us is, are we going to cooperate with God? Or are we going to inhibit his work? Are we going to be foundation stones or are we going to be stumbling blocks? Are we going to lean into God's work in such a way that he can do what he wants to do? Or are we going to insist that we know what needs to be done? Are we going to let him heal our imaginations? Because if we do, if we cooperate, if we let the body grow up, if we let the temple be built, then we can become the fullness of him. Stand with me if you will. So what does it look like? How does this become possible? I'm going to leave you with three images really quickly. Three images. The worship team can come whenever they're ready. Three images that I think show what kind of people and what kind of character is necessary for us to have a community. The first image is of Zacchaeus' tree. You remember the story of Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man. A wee little man is he? He can't see Jesus because of the crowd. But there's a tree. And he climbs up that tree and he sees Jesus. For a community to become the body of Christ, there have to be people who are like that tree. Who are planted, who are stable, who are sturdy enough to be climbed on. One of the things about trees is that they are built to endure through seasonal changes. And every church goes through seasonal changes. Has a spring, has a summer, has a winter. Every, every community has times in which it seems like there's death. And trees stay. They stay. And if we're going to be the body and the fullness of everything God wants us to be, there have to be some of you who say, come what may, I'm planted here. My roots are here. God has put me here. And whether it's spring or winter, I'm here. And those kind of people become the ways in which Zacchaeus can see Jesus. I want you to think about really quickly about Jonas Whale. Jonas Whale. In a community that lasts, that endures, that becomes the fullness of Christ, there are people who stomach rebels. That's what the whale does, right? He just swallows the rebel prophet and keeps holding on to him until the rebel prophet says, oh God, what have I done? And then the whale spits him out right back into his mission. We have to have people in the community who have that kind of thick skin and that kind of stomach that can say, I know you're living in sin. I know you're broken. I know you're unhealthy, but we can take it and we will hold you and keep holding you and keep holding you and keep dragging you down deeper and deeper into the things of God until you know how to pray for yourself. And when you do touch God, we're going to put you right back out onto your mission. That is what makes community possible. And then finally, last image is the image of Moses' rock. You remember God says to Moses, speak to the rock and I'll make water come out and give, and give refreshment to my people. And Moses is a little out of, out of sorts and strikes the rock and water still comes out. And especially to the leaders in this community, I want you to hear, the only way to have community is to be the kind of people who whether we're spoken to with grace or we're stricken with a stick, out of us flows the Spirit's life. And when you have people like that in a community, we can tolerate troublemakers. We can be struck because out of us comes the supernatural life of the Spirit that brings chain even to the people who are striking us. We have that in this community and we have what it takes to become the fullness of his body, a temple where God dwells. Amen? 
God, make us those people. We're going to come to your table, and we're going to come to this table as your people to be made the fullness of Christ. And let's begin by praying the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Those who are going to serve communion, if you will come. Father, our prayer this morning is that you will, by your spirit, make us the body of Christ. Make us the fullness of him who fills everything with himself. Build us as a temple. And as we receive this gift this morning from you, make us once again aware. Give us an epiphany of what it is we're called to be and to do. If you'll lift the bread. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body. So Holy Spirit, our prayer is that you will come now to this bread and make it for us the body of our Lord. And open us to receive it in such a way that we become the body of Christ. Jesus, we we welcome you. Make us one. If you'll lift the cup, please. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Holy Spirit, come and make this cup the blood of Jesus for us. And make our drinking of it a share in his sacrifice, so that we become a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Let us confess the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Sanctuary, I invite you to come and receive the body and blood of our Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.